Gospels to John 9-8. I'm smiling because I enjoyed uh, Marilyn's flourish at the end of that hymn. That was fantastic. John 9-8. It is possible that I may be the only one here who enjoys watching Marx Brothers movies. I'm guessing that you people are far too sophisticated for the Marx Brothers. And since you are likely unfamiliar with their films, they are a comedy trio from the 1930s that included Groucho, Chico, and Harpo. In one of their films, Duck Soup, there is a scene that features Chico. He is a brother who affects an Italian accent for his character. Now, Chico is, in this film, Chico is pretending to be his brother Groucho. And as part of his disguise, he's wearing a thick mustache and carrying a big cigar. A key female character in the movie thinks that something might be amiss, and she questions if the man before her is really who he says he is. Chico then speaks a line that is now famous. He says, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? That phrase has become part of our American vocabulary. Since it was first spoken on the silver screen, we have heard it many times in all kinds of settings, from entertainment and in politics. But over the years, it has changed slightly such that a word has been added. And so when we hear it today, here's how it usually goes. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Have you heard that said? Today, we return to the story of the blind man who has been healed by Jesus. And after he is healed, he is now forced to go through a gauntlet of multiple doubters who subject him to several rounds of questioning. And as they interrogate this man, they not only question the reality of his healing, they even question if he is who he says he is. In this man's case, he's the genuine article. He is a man born blind. But in each setting, there will be no shortage of those who rather than believe this man's own testimony will prefer to believe their lying eyes. Last time, as we began chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples met a man who was born blind. It is very likely that Jesus and his disciples met this blind man outside the temple. This was a prime location for the disabled to beg for money. While the disciples assumed that the man's blindness was the result of sin, Jesus said that neither this man's parents nor this man sinned. Instead, Jesus explained that through this blindness, the works of God should be revealed 
in him. Jesus then proceeded to fulfill one of those works, and that was to heal the man of his blindness. But as this story continues to unfold, we are seeing a second and even greater divine work. This man has not only been given his physical sight, he has been given a spiritual sight that increasingly allows him to see the truth that Jesus is the Christ. As part of the physical healing conducted for this man, Jesus made a mixture of saliva and dirt and placed it on the man's eyes. He then told the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which John deliberately points out means sent. So Jesus sent the man to a pool named Sent. This was a reminder of what Jesus repeatedly declared in the previous scene, which took place in the temple. Jesus had repeated over and over again that he had come down from heaven because he was sent by the Father. This healing in particular of giving sight to the blind was a powerful sign that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a definitive sign that the Messiah had come would be his unique ability to give sight to the blind. At Isaiah 42.7, God said through Isaiah that Messiah would, quote, open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. When Jesus folded together a mixture of dirt and saliva, we agreed that Jesus didn't need to use those ingredients. We know from his other miracles that he can heal simply by the power of his word. He speaks, and it is so. Therefore, we concluded the application of these ingredients most likely hold symbolic meaning. If it is symbolic, unfortunately, John doesn't tell us the symbolism of those ingredients. But since the very beginning early centuries of the church, it has been suggested that these ingredients, in particular the dust of the earth, was meant to remind us of the days of creation. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord formed man out of the dust of the earth. It may be that when Jesus used the dust of the ground to heal this man, it is meant to remind us that Jesus is the creator, and we are his creation. It may also signal that Jesus, rather than repairing this man's useless eyes, created for him a brand new pair of eyes. While we cannot be certain of the meaning of the applied clay which Jesus used to anoint him, we can be absolutely sure that the man did do exactly as Jesus commanded. 
Jesus said to the man, go and wash. And that is precisely what he did. In the last sentence of verse 7, where we finished last time, John reported of the man, so he went and washed and came back seeing. That translation, he came back seeing, might lead us to think that he came back to the place where he usually begged. But that is not the case. The translation provided by the NIV takes a bit of liberty with the text and adds the word home. He came home seeing. While the word home is not in the original Greek text, it does accurately reflect what is reported in the following verses. He, the blind man, the formerly blind man, returned home where his neighbors will be the first of a gauntlet of doubters who will refuse to believe this man but prefer instead to believe their lying eyes. Let's go, please, to John 9, verse 8, as we pick up where we left off. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, <clears throat> Is not this he who sat and begged? We learn now that this man has neighbors. And this implies that he is not homeless. Although he is a beggar, he is not homeless. He has a place to live. He has neighbors. There are two possibilities about his living situation. The first possibility is that he has a room of his own. And because he begs for a living, we will assume that it is the most meager of accommodations. Another possibility is that he continues, although he's a grown man, he continues to live with his parents. I say that because we will meet his parents later in the chapter, and they are easily and quickly located when they are summoned by the religious authorities. While we don't know the nature of this man's accommodations, we do know, based on John's report, that he has neighbors. And these neighbors were familiar enough with this man to know about him and his blindness. We will think that for many years they watched with pity as this blind man was led from his home, wherever he lived, to the place where he typically begged every day. But on this day, the neighbors ask one another, isn't this the man who sat and begged. Let's notice that once again, like we saw with the 12 disciples, the neighbors do not talk to the man, they talk about him. Rather than asking him what they want to know, they whisper among themselves, isn't this the man who sat and begged? The reason they ask this question is because they notice a profound change in this man. The man that they've known to be blind for many years can now see. As they ask this question of one another, allow me to point out 
that the construction of the Greek text expects a positive answer. In effect, what they're saying is, this is the blind man, right? And even though they expect a positive answer, the fact that they feel they need to ask that question indicates they are having difficulty accepting what their eyes are seeing. They think it's him, but they're not quite convinced it is him because the man they know is blind, and this man is clearly not blind. Well, their initial question sparks a debate, and those who are gathered immediately break into two camps. Let's look at verse 9. Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. Let's pause there. I have to think that this is a condensed version of a much longer debate. I'm sure there were a lot of words used as they debated whether or not this is who they think it is. But John gives us a summary that indicates that there are two distinct camps. Some give their opinion which affirms the original question which was asked. That question being, isn't this the man who sat and begged? Well, some reply by saying, this is he, this is him. They're familiar with the man, they recognize his face, and therefore they confirm this is the same man. Now, as a brief aside, allow me to point out that we will assume that there were some profound changes in this man's face. Think for a minute. Imagine the look of wonder and amazement as he is seeing things and people for the very first time. Right? We've all seen uh, toddlers seeing things for the first time and how amazed and how wondrous things are. Think of a grown man who had never seen. He's blind since birth. And for the first time, he's thing, seeing things that he, he, he couldn't even imagine that had to be explained to him and didn't do justice. And for the first time, he's seeing these things. Think of the smile on his face as he is overjoyed with the gift of being given sight for the very first time. Well, some of the neighbors say, this is he. Not all the neighbors are in agreement. The opposing faction of this debate calls out, he is like him. Meaning, he looks like the man we know, but this is not the same man. So rather than believe that they are seeing the results of a miracle, they give what they prefer to believe. They, they say that they believe this is a case of mistaken identity. In other words, they're saying this is not the same man, and they prefer to believe their own lying eyes. But suddenly... For the first time in this account, the man speaks for himself. Amazingly, no one has spoken to him yet. And, no, and he has not said anything yet in this scene. And so for the first time, he speaks up for himself and he calls out, I am he. The NIV says, I am the man. If we will go please to verse 10, we'll hear the response of the crowd to his affirming, affirming that he is the same man. Verse 10, therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? The crowd of neighbors now addresses the man for the first time. 
Finally, they're speaking to him rather than about him. For all we know, this may be the first time some of these neighbors have ever spoken to this man. Let's recall, the neighbors would have assumed that his blindness was the result of a divine punishment for his sin or for, the na- for their parents' sin, his parents' sin. Many would have avoided him. And so some of them may be speaking to him for the very first time. And if this is the same man, and he is now able to see, they want to know how he is able to see. How is this possible? They ask, how were your eyes opened? Notice that their question is in the passive voice. And what that means is, they assume that someone else gave him the sight. That's the meaning of a passive voice. Somebody else did the action. They don't ask him, how did you open your eyes? They don't ask that. They ask, how were your eyes opened? Implying that someone else did it. And so the effect of their question is that they are not only asking how it happened, they're asking who caused it to happen. Let's look or hear the man's response at verse 11. He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. The man supplies them with an answer. In fact, he provides them with exactly the details they wanted. He not only recounts how it was done, but he tells them who did it. He begins his answer by identifying who is responsible for his newfound sight. He identifies the one who healed him as a man called Jesus. Let's make a mental note of how he describes Jesus as a man called Jesus. This will be significant later. A man called Jesus. The style of his identification suggests he knows something about him. His name is Jesus, but he knows little else about him. There is a decided vagueness, as he says, a man called Jesus. But his vagueness is not really a surprise. Let's recall this man's survival required him to beg for money. Because he had to beg every day, this would have put him continuously outside the temple and therefore missing the teaching that Jesus gave inside the temple. But let's not miss the fact that Jesus came to him. It is a reminder of that truth that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The man not only tells his neighbors who is responsible for his vision, but also recounts how it happened. And what is interesting is that he offers only the essential and basic facts. He makes no attempt to offer any elaboration, no speculation, just the facts. Here's what he says, again, verse 11. A man called Jesus 
made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Just the facts. The neighbors have one last question for the man, which is followed by a very succinct response. Their question appears at verse 12. They ask him, where is he? He said, I do not know. We can imagine a number of reasons why the crowd, the neighbors, want to know the whereabouts of Jesus. Perhaps some reasoned, hey, if this man can heal this man's blindness, he can certainly heal me of what is ailing me. And so they want to know, where is he? Others, however, may be asking for Jesus' whereabouts because they know that Jesus is already a wanted man and are eager to hand him over to the religious authorities, and they want to know, where is he? The man says, I don't know. Again, this is not a surprise. After his brief encounter with Jesus, he was sent to the pool of Siloam. While he was being led to the pool, and while he washed there at the pool, The man had no way of knowing where Jesus intended to go next. And that is not even to mention that when the two parted ways, the man was still blind. He had no reason to know where Jesus was going or where he was now. But whatever the reason the neighbors were asking for the whereabouts of Jesus, they were dissatisfied with this man's answer. Therefore, they decided they would bring this man and the entire matter to the attention of the religious leaders. Let's go, please, to verse 13. They brought him, the blind man, formerly blind man, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Let's take note of that word brought, as in they brought him. That is a loaded word. It is the kind of word, it is the word that is used when someone is arrested and brought before the authorities. It is the word when somebody is brought before a judge. Therefore, when the neighbors bring this man to the Pharisees. This is not for a friendly visit. The fact that they had to bring him, that they brought him, suggests that the blind man didn't go voluntarily. He had to be compelled. He had to be forced to appear before the Pharisees. But as they brought the man to the Pharisees, they had to know that if this was the same man who was born blind, And if this was indeed a miracle, this was potentially a world-changing event. There were others who had come and gone who claimed to be miracle workers. But if this man called Jesus could actually give sight to the blind, this was unprecedented and staggering news. They may be witnesses to something that had never occurred before. Let's have a quick peek ahead to verse 32. 
God willing, we'll examine this passage where verse 32 is found next week. We're jumping ahead to a debate among the Pharisees. And during this debate, the formerly blind man says this, verse 32. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. You see, this is a first-time event. This has never happened before. And this is a fact that would have been well-known to the neighbors and to the Pharisees. This man will remind the Pharisees that the miracle of giving sight to the blind is a sign the prophets foretold would point to the Messiah. If we will return now to today's text and go now to verse 14, our narrator, the Apostle John, now inserts an editorial comment. Verse 14. He tells us that the day that Jesus performed this miracle was not just any day. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. As we know from our previous studies, the Pharisees taught and demanded very strict observance to the Sabbath. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, and on that day you shall do no work. Over the centuries, many generations of rabbis were concerned that the people of Israel would break the Sabbath because they might not be clear as to what is constituted work and what was not work. Therefore, in an effort to prevent Israel from breaking the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, the rabbis over several generations built what is often described as a fence around the law. They devised an enormous list of rules so that no one would even come near to breaking the fourth commandment. They had this list of rules about what was work and what was not work, and this list was so onerous, so burdensome, that no one could keep it. As Jesus would say later to the Pharisees, they've become so involved with the minutia of their man-made rules, they lost the purpose and the spirit of the law. They were so busy not doing that and commanding people not to do this or do that that they lost the spirit of the law. They neglected the purpose of the Sabbath. And what is the Sabbath? The purpose of the Sabbath? It is to give glory to God. And that is exactly what we see Jesus doing when he heals this blind man. We will notice that in John's editorial comment, he delineates two specific things that Jesus did and did on the Sabbath, and therefore giving glory to God. He, quote, made the clay, and second, he opened the man's eyes. In regard to the first detail, the rabbis over these multiple generations established a specific rule against kneading, that is, the kneading of bread. This kneading or mixing of materials 
That was categorized as work. Remember, these a very specific list of all kinds of rules. And so the Pharisees decided any kind of mixing of ingredients or the kneading of bread, that was, that was work and therefore forbidden. When Jesus made his clay and mixed together the two materials of saliva and dirt, according to the Pharisees, that was work, strictly prohibited. The second detail mentioned by John is that Jesus opened the man's eyes. In other words, he healed him. This too was work and therefore prohibited. The only exception that was allowed for giving medical aid on the Sabbath is if that person's life was in danger. But since this man had been blind for many years and blind since birth, clearly this man's life was not in danger. And so the Pharisees would have ruled this man is a lawbreaker. In verse 15, the Pharisees have a question for the man who was brought before them. Verse 15, the Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Quick sidebar. Do you remember the TV show Dragnet? Yeah? It featured the main character, Sergeant Joe Friday. Remember Sergeant Joe Friday? Well, he was famous for saying this, just the facts, ma'am, right? Joe Friday would love this guy. This man has a gift for being concise. He goes straight to the point. You know, some people, when they tell a story, you know, they, he was asked, who healed this? How did it happen? Some people, they got to tell you what they had for breakfast, what they were wearing that day, what their weather was like. And Joe Friday, just the facts, just the facts. This man would do Joe Friday proud. He gets right to the point. He makes three simple statements. He put clay on my eyes. I washed and I see. That's good stuff, right? He, how did this happen? Well, here, let me tell you. He put clay on my eyes. I washed. Now I see. At this point, the Pharisees turn away from the man and they begin to argue amongst themselves. Like the man's neighbors, the Pharisees also split into two camps. But there's a major difference in regard to the main point of the Pharisees. The, the neighbors, their focus was on the blind man. But the focus on the Pharisees is on Jesus and the fact that he is a lawbreaker, that he does not obey the Sabbath. Let's look at verse 16, please. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Here's the other camp. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. The first thing we should notice, no one congratulates the blind man. Nobody. No one says, oh, we are so happy for you. I can't believe, you, this is the first time you've ever seen we're so happy for you. Praise God, for he has done great things. Nobody says that. Instead, the chief concern of this first faction is that the Sabbath has been broken. 
Somebody broke the law about kneading bread or materials of mud and saliva. Somebody's got to pay for this. In their view, since this man Jesus has broken the Sabbath, that is their understanding of the Sabbath, this man can't be from God. If he were from God, he would not break the Sabbath. Instead, he would keep the Sabbath exactly the way they keep the Sabbath, that is, according to their own lying eyes. But there are among the Pharisees some who question this immediate conclusion. That's not suggesting they're taking Jesus aside. Remember, there are a lot of people who like just to argue for the sake of arguing. They ask, how can a man who is a sinner... Do such signs. Notice the word is plural, signs. Do such signs. This indicates that before the report of this healing of the blind man, they were already aware that Jesus had performed miraculous signs. But what is most significant is that they do not speak about miracles, but about signs. They could have used the word miracles, They could have said, how can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? But instead they speak about signs. What do we know about signs? Well, we know that signs points to something beyond itself. The word sign takes the extra step of suggesting that there is a sign that points to God. That makes their question all the more perplexing. How can a man who is a sinner do miraculous signs that point to God. And that would be especially true for this miracle, the giving of sight, a power the prophets foretold would point to the Messiah, and as this formerly blind man will soon point out to the Pharisees, has never before been seen in the history of the world. And so, at this point, the Pharisees are at a stalemate. They are stuck. There's an impasse. Now, I'm sure it took them a long time to get to this point. This was not just two quick statements. I'm thinking this, again, is a condensed version of an argument that went back and forth for hours as these people said the same thing over and over again, but only louder to try and make their point. But in the end, they couldn't come to an agreement. As John reports at the end of verse 16, there was a division among them. They were hopelessly split into two camps. And we can see how deeply divided they were because we find an unexpected and surprising development. They turn to the blind man and ask him for his opinion. They ask him, Who do you, what do you say about him? Now, the reason I'm saying that's a surprising development is because these are the Pharisees. They are esteemed by the public for their superior knowledge, their learning of the scripture. Some of them are probably likely members of the esteemed Sanhedrin, the ruling council of all Israel. And yet they're asking a common beggar, a man who normally sits on the street and begs for his opinion. They're clearly desperate. They ask, what do you say about him? In the Greek text, the word you is in an emphatic position. What do you say about him? And the reason they are now asking for the input of this beggar is also stated. Because, they say, he opened 
your eyes. It would be a mistake for us to conclude that the Pharisees now believe that this man has had his eyes opened, meaning he's been given the sight of blind. That would be a mistake for us to, con- to conclude that. They don't believe that. Their disbelief will soon become evident in the next passage when they bring in the man's parents and interrogate them. They demand to know, is this man your son and did he, was he really born blind? So they don't believe that he has been healed. Therefore, I suggest that what we, as we read this question, we read it like this. What do you say about him? Because he supposedly opened your eyes. Well, in the last part of verse 17, we find the man's reply. He said, he is a prophet. Once again, he gives a concise and simple answer. As Joe Friday would say, just the facts. He is a prophet. This answer may seem insufficient to us because we know that Jesus is much more than a prophet, but the man is accurate. He is a prophet. We often say that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And still he is so much more. He is Savior and Lord. He is creator and sustainer. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And yet he is a prophet because he speaks for God because he is God. He is the ultimate and final prophet. Now let's recall how this man identified Jesus when he was first being questioned by the neighbors. Do you remember how he was referred to? A man called Jesus. Now how does he refer to him? He is a prophet. The point is, when this man gained his sight, he was at the beginning of a spiritual journey. A journey that shows with each new step, he is increasing with spiritual clarity in his recognition of who Jesus is. And as the story continues we will see this man gain even greater insight such that at the end, we will see this man, formerly blind man, worshiping Jesus. This man now sees what the religious leaders and the neighbors and the people in the temple refuse to see, what their lying eyes refuse to see. When this man identifies Jesus as a prophet, he is confessing what Jesus has repeatedly said over and over, especially in the previous passage, that he has been sent by God. As a prophet, he has come down from heaven and has been sent by the Father to deliver the good news of salvation, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This man's story, which is still unfolding before us, is a powerful lesson for us. As this man reflects on what has happened to him, his vision becomes increasingly clear. In a very similar way, for many of us, there was a time when we lived in darkness. We were blind to the truth that Jesus is the Christ. But then the Holy Spirit came to us, and Jesus Christ came upon us, and he gave us eyes to see. 
And the more we look to him, the more we discover about him, the more we can say, like this blind man, the Lord anointed my eyes. I am washed in his blood. And now I can see the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you have the power to open the eyes of the blind. With the vision that you give, which opens the eyes of our heart, we can see the truth that you are Savior and Lord, the one who has come to seek and to save the lost. Amen.